0: Mic check. One two. Uh-huh. Mic check. One two. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> should we drop the, yeah. drop the beat? Drop the beat. Drop the beat all right hello and welcome all listeners across the world to on the edge with eddie detangling our black identities i am your host eddie etty and man i am so excited that you are joining our journey to explore all the different shades of black identities have real conversations and of course great discussions with some amazing people Now, I have to say our conversations are not about um, degrading people, discouraging people, or to prove a point. Uh, Exploring Black identities, it's all about learning, empowering, and giving a voice to the people to tell their stories, and even just be a voice for people who don't have a voice to tell their stories. Um, On the Edge with Eddie, it's about learning, empowering people, and man, do I have a treat for you. I am beyond joyful and honored to have on the edge, Dean Adrian Wing, Associate Dean for International and Comparative Law Programs, and the Bassie Dutton murray Professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. Man, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do injustice, but you guys are in for some major learning if you know what I mean, right? Now, before I introduce Din Wing, I want to um I want to set up a stage for what you're about to experience, right? That's nothing less than greatness because Din Wing is one of those individuals that when you're in her presence, I'm telling you, you never want to leave, right? I mean, the sheer wisdom of you know, um, what's happening in the world, where she has been and just like empowering black people. I mean, I never want to leave her presence ever. Um, So what I've done is within the next uh, sort of three episodes or however long it takes, we're going to be doing a three part series of detangling Black Identities with Dean Wing. I am super excited. Just like we have in the African movies, we're going to have a part one, part two, part three, who knows? We might actually even have part four, five, six, way up to 10, because I am truly blessed and blissful to have Din Wing on the edge with Eddie. So I am going to stop talking, right? And then I am going to then tell you a little bit about uh, my good friend, uh, a mother, an auntie, and just sort of just an amazing, powerful woman um, that I think everybody needs to know and hear about. So, Dan Wing, thank you for joining us. We are super excited for for you to be here. How are you feeling today? (laughs) I'm feeling great. And thank you
1: so much, Eddie, for inviting me to participate. Uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful conversation.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, absolutely is. Um, So, first of all, um, I don't want to introduce you um, just so everybody knows who you are, because, I mean, within this three-part three process, I want people to get to know who you are as an individual, um, and then along the way, who you are as an educator, as a mother... Um, and then as an advocate, a philanthropist, and just, just an amazing holistic woman, right? But for those who have never heard of Din Wing before, um, again, like I said, Din Wing is the Associate Dean of International um, and Comparative Law at the University of Iowa. And she is originally from California, um, a native of California, um, went uh, actually went to school in the East Coast, right? Um, She has gone through, she has traveled probably over 50 countries, work with way too many Scholars around the world. She has over one hundred and forty publications, books, articles. Um, she teaches. She has she has done a lot of work in sort of countries like South Africa, Rwanda, uh, Palestine. Um, and I mean, your experience that we're, the experience that we're going to be talking about is just. I mean, I am just super excited to talk about it. So you know what let's just, let's just cut to the chase and let's talk about one of the most uh, amazing things I read about you is again, of course, you're from California. You grew up in the East Coast. You came from Iowa because of love. Right. Um, But you know, the story of your mother was what actually spoke to me. You know, let's be honest. I am a mama's boy. Right. And I'm not afraid to say it. I love my mom and I love being with my mom all the time. But for you, your mom sort of shaped who you are today, right? And one of the most amazing things I read was, you know, when, when you were in a position to actually sort of give back to your mom, you know, one of the things that you did was you bought her tickets to travel to Europe, right? So tell me a little bit about how your mom helped you become who you are today um, and the reason behind purchasing that ticket for your mom. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, as you said, uh, you know, um, I, I purchased this ticket for my mom, but you have to understand a little bit more about my background. My father died when I was nine. And so I was mainly raised by my mother, who became a widow uh, when she was 36. And I was nine. And my sister and brother, who are twins, they were six. So uh, she went from being a housewife. Uh, whose husband had been a doctor, to having to go back to work from scratch after not working since I had been born. So she sacrificed everything and became a teacher. Uh, she sacrificed her, her own uh, betterment to pay for us to go to private schools. Um, and so I, I felt when I grow up, I want to be able to give my mom uh, the advantages that she didn't have and uh, going to that private school, I was around some very wealthy people who traveled around, who had their own cars in high school, who had fancy clothes. And we didn't have any of that. Uh, so once I uh, was graduating from Stanford Law School, uh, I said, OK, I'm about to become a lawyer in a big New York law firm. Uh, they gave money for us to you know, move from the West Coast to the East Coast. So I said, I'm gonna get my mom a ticket. And so after the bar exam, she and I uh, spent three weeks in Europe together. She had never been uh, to Europe. And um, I felt this would be a very tiny gift uh, that I could, could give her. So that first trip um, was fabulous. And then from then all the way up until almost when she passed away, in 2013, I took her all over the world. Uh, So she went with me many times in Europe. She went with me to South Africa and Zimbabwe, and also to uh, New Zealand and Australia. So I felt she sacrificed to give me an education so that I could then give her the world. And she was very grateful For those opportunities, yeah,
0: yeah, no that that that's amazing. And then, so looking at you know what your mom did for you, at least you know for me, that's exactly what you are doing for other people right now, right? And which is which is amazing. Um, But going back, you had mentioned about you know going to private school, Um, and I think um, in Orange, uh, in Orange, New Jersey, uh, you went to is it uh, Mary Beer, Mary? Bird or Beard School for Girls, right? Mm-hmm. And then also um, you are one of uh, 49 girls in the New York Academy in Livingston. Mm-hmm. How does that experience, especially around that time, being a, a black female in an elite school um, how does that how does that affect you? I mean, because there has to be, you know, the whole gender thing and then the race and then the class differences, you know, and then again, going back and you were saying that you grew up um, with a single mother. Right. And how does that play into especially being an elite space, um, you know, being a black woman from sort of a single uh, parent home?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it it shaped me totally. Um, Orange, New Jersey, um, where I mainly grew up from, you know, elementary through high school, uh, is a suburb of Newark, New Jersey, the biggest town in, in, in uh, New Jersey, and it, and they're all suburbs of New York City. Um, and Orange was a, is still a poor town, um, and uh, you know, there are heavy back, black population, some Hispanics. And then also at that point they had some Italians, uh, some wasps, uh, et cetera. But the black population was poor. Uh, I was in a, in a public school in a black, an area that was becoming increasingly black and the education was, was falling apart. So my mother who herself was a teacher in Newark, you know, the town nearby, she saw that something was gonna have to be done or I was going to, all three of us were going to just fall off, you know, fall off the, the mountain and not get a good education. Mm. And my grandmother had been a teacher as well. So, right. uh, you know, our education was going to be paramount. So first, this is 1971, we're talking about. Right. She, she put me in the private, pri- the only private school in Orange. And this school was all white girls, right? right? And these girls were being trained, they call it like a finishing school. They would, you know, go there through high school and then they would marry men who would who would have attended Harvard and Yale and Princeton. The girls would go to Vassar and you know uh, Radcliffe and you know all these places were sex segregated at the time. Mm. So I end up in this school with these very rich white girls. And here I am, you know, this black girl from you know a single parent. But the education was fabulous. I started French. I had Latin. They had sports for girls that didn't exist in the public schools. At that point in a public school, girls could do like cheerleading and maybe they could do basketball. But I did field hockey, lacrosse. I became class president. I was getting straight A's. So I didn't want to go to that school because I didn't want to leave my environment of mainly black friends. But once I was in there, I realized I'm getting a superior education. And then all of the schools in the area decided to start going co-ed. And so in 19, um, no, I started at Baird in 1968. In 1971, I was one of the first 49 girls going to a 200-year-old boys prep school. Wow. Wow. And Newark Academy (laughs) used to be in Newark, but at this point, it was in a suburb called Livingston out in the woods and so I had to commute on a bus you know a half hour out to this place and there were of these 49 girls I think there might have been five of us who were black Uh, Mm. and the school had 500 students and it was uh, an incredible culture shock but it was it was great because the the three years of like junior high, seventh, eighth and ninth, I got a strong identity as a girl who you could do anything, yeah. which was not what you would get if you went to the public school at that point. So then going into an all male environment, they they didn't have any traditions of how to treat girls. So they treated us like one of the boys. Right. And that was very helpful. <laughs> right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. was in all of the sports. <laughs> Uh, then I was also in the student government. I was in the honor society and I was at the top. So these very rich, mainly white boys, they uh, had to respect me because I was an A student. Right. They needed me to help them with their physics and their calculus and their French and their, these other very complex subjects. Uh, they were coming from rich families, who owned the businesses in mm. a Newark, New Jersey. And these boys knew they were going to be able to stay in that level of, of achievement. And, and they have, most of right. the boys I went to school with, they became very wealthy men, you know, inheriting money and, and being in family businesses. And I had none of that. Right. So my school, Newark Academy was a feeder for the Ivy League
0: okay schools so i went
1: ended up going to princeton six of us went to princeton six went to harvard six went to yale i mean our class was only 88 students so a huge Mm. portion of the class went to an ivy league or that level school and when i got to princeton i was i think in the fourth class of women at princeton And for many young women coming from public schools that were co-ed to go into an all boys or male university was traumatic. It wasn't traumatic for me. So in other words, the six years in those private schools prepared me to excel at Princeton. And then after that, I got a master's at UCLA. And after that I went to Stanford. So I was going to school all this time with these same people. And I understood them from when we were young. They didn't understand black people at all. They knew nothing right. you know, about black people, but I understood them and I excelled in all those environments. And then I became a lawyer, the same people I've been dealing with, a law professor, the same people that I've been dealing with who are from predominantly elite environments who had what we call today white privilege. right? And were not even aware of that. So right. I'm very yeah. grateful that my mom... Uh, you know sacrificed her her money plus we had scholarships plus because my dad died we were recipients of social security right so we had all those resources to enable all three of us uh, to go to uh, these schools wow
0: ah, ah, that's, that's that's great do you um so the 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 five girls that you mentioned from sort of the back in are, are you guys still in contact do you talk do you yes. communicate yeah you're still in contact
1: Yeah, what, I've been to every five-year reunion of Newark Academy. Oh, okay, yeah. So we recently in 2019 had our 45th high school reunion. Wow. And one of those girls, she was with me not only at the Baird School, but at Newark Academy and at Princeton.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) And
1: and then I've gone to every five-year reunion of Princeton. And so, so one of them, literally, I've been in touch right. with quite a yeah, bit. And the yeah. others have come to several reunions. And then because of Facebook, I am in touch, uh, I think, uh, with all five maybe of those uh, those women. And then I'm also a Facebook friend of some of the people, some of the white people that I went to Newark Academy yeah, with,
0: yeah. and obviously people I went to college and Right, law school with yeah, of course. It's interesting because when you were talking, you said um, the since the boys couldn't really understand or didn't even know your identity, they treated you like boys. Yeah, right? one which of the then, boys. Right, which then helped you transition to this different spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's pretty amazing to me because you know part of identity or the, the issue that you know people have with identity is especially when it comes to talking about black people is sometimes people don't understand Black people, right? They don't understand sort of their, maybe their background, their culture, or they just, they're just afraid of what's different, right? So because of that, they either treat them as how their mind is capable of treating them or try to treat them as, you know, something, you know, either one of them or something that they completely or not worth. well, maybe they treat them like animals, right? And, and so it's interesting when you're talking, you're like, yeah, you know, I was treated like a boy because they didn't even know what to do with me. Um, uh, let me, let me, let
1: me <laughs> tweak this a bit. Okay. Uh, because the black girls, right? There weren't many of us. Right. We were, of course, looked at differently than the white girls. Yeah. So the white girls, the white boys were trying to date, right? They were dating. Right.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs>
1: But a lot of the white boys, uh, you know, they didn't look at the black girls as people you would date, right? right. Uh, okay. So, uh, because we were in that category, so we could be one of the boys, but right. it could be they would look at one of those white girls very differently. Well, she was someone they should date, and, you know, ultimately, years later, they would marry. Right. So it was raced and gendered how you know, we would be looked at. And then because yeah. I also was smart, so that put me in a in a separate category, even from the other girls, the right. other black girls and white yeah. girls, because I was outperforming all of them. So they needed to rely on me uh, to help them right. in ways that might not have been been the case. So in my own situation, I was predominantly treated like one of those boys, but not in the sense that they asked me to come to their house. Right. Yeah. Socialize with them or nothing. Yep. No, 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 there was nothing, nothing like, uh, like that. Uh, but, uh, there wasn't, uh, anything in the school that was like, okay, girls, you're going to take home economics and learn how to sew while the boys are taking shop or, you know, there was none of that. There was no history of any, any of that. Right.
0: Uh, So then I I wanted, to, you know, change, uh, switch gear a little bit, because again, you went into, you went to law school um, and, you know, as part of law school, you then started this journey of, you know, teaching and sort of, um, you know, trying to educate people to understand sort of the different aspects of race and gender and everything else that comes with it right and one of the classes that you teach even now is uh, the critical race theory right and now I have to be honest I didn't really hear any I didn't know anything about critical race theory until I talked to you Um, and then of course after I'm talking to you I was like oh wow it's a thing right so for those individuals like me out there who don't know what critical race theory is. Can you give us the sort of like the uh, executive summary of what it is? And then sort of the little uh, details within it, you know, like uh, the social construct, right? Mm-hmm. And then also the inter- intersectionality. Um, and then we can get into sort of the meat of what that actually means.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I should tell you, I've been specializing in race issues since I was in college. So in 1974, I I did a certificate in what was then called Afro-American studies. Okay. And so I had that interest since then. And then in law school, there were no classes that related to race. Right. I became a professor um, six years after I finished law school. And so they asked me, what do you want to teach? And I was an international lawyer. Um, so I knew I wanted to do something international, but they said, well, what else do you want to teach? So I knew, okay, I want to teach about race. So at that time, the book that was on race, uh, was written by, uh, Derek Bell and his textbook that I would use for the course I first taught was called race, racism, and American law. Okay. And so, um, I first taught that course, which as it sounds, covers everything, you know, in race and and law. And Derrick Bell became one of the founders of critical race theory. So Mm. critical race theory gets founded in the 1980s um, by progressive um, men, uh, mainly men, who were interested in approaches to the law that uh, looked at it uh, in, 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 in very, very, um, in a, with a certain angle. So it's not just any discussion about race, but includes discussion of white supremacy, white privilege, uh, anti sub what we call anti-subordination theory. So critical race theory starts from these few men, including Derrick Bell, and then expands out over the last, you know, 30 years or so, uh, where it has certain principles. So, uh, aside from those issues I was just talking about, um, one of the principles of critical race theory is what we call the social construction of race. Race, h- how you look, really has no, is n- it's not about biology, right? These scientists in the 19th century used to say, oh, it's about biology, you know, and there's Negroid, Caucasoid, Mongoloid. But no, actually what it is, is your race is socially constructed, meaning how you get viewed uh, determines certain things about your race. So for instance, uh, in America, uh, I'm African-American, right? I'm a light-skinned African-American. When I go to South Africa, when I used to go, I was put in another category that they called colored. And the colored category uh, was treated better than the blacks, but worse than the whites. Then on the same day, I flew to Brazil. Right. And in Brazil, somebody of my coloring is considered white, meaning they had the top status. Right. So, in other words, how you get treated by the law and now today by society has to do with how that society constructs you. And now, of course, in, in neither South Africa nor Brazil, is there legal segregation, but these centuries of legal segregation result today, including in the U.S., in systems of what we call de facto, in fact, segregation, right? Mm, So the social construction of race is a very, very important, uh, tenet, T-E-N-E-T, tenet of critical race theory, right? Then another one you mentioned, uh, and that you do hear more and more in the media now, is about intersectionality. Uh, Intersectionality became popular in large part because of uh, a critical race theory scholar, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who teaches at both UCLA and Columbia Law School. So intersectionality is the idea that all of us have different identities. So for instance, I have a race identity and I have a gender identity. And how I am treated goes along the lines of what I was telling you when I was in high school, you get looked at as both, both black and a woman, not right. only black or only a woman, right? So it started out with, let's look at those two, but now it has expanded out. And in my own work, uh, you know, I've identified maybe 20 or more identities that yes. everyone has And uh, each of those identities can subject you to privileging and or discrimination sometime at the same time. So for instance, you have a nationality. Mm -hmm. Are you an American or a non-American? That's gonna affect you. You have a race, a so-called race, the socially constructed race. Separate from the race, you have an ethnicity, right? So somebody could be a Ghanaian American, Nice. uh versus a jamaican american those are ethnic uh you also of course have a gender and some people have male or female then we have people who are trans gender people or uh relate to to more than one uh you have a sexual orientation you have a class identity, you have um, disability, you have a religious identity. So you get the idea. You have all these different identities and they intersect with each other. Right,
0: okay, yep.
1: You you can't just uh, ignore them. So let's say if you are a Muslim, Right, You are going to be treated differently depending on the country than if you were a Christian or right. Jewish or Buddhist or something else. And then if you're a Muslim female and you wear a headscarf, as one of my daughters does, right, Good job. that is going to put you in another category. Yep. You're living in a country that's mainly not Muslim like the United States and, and so forth. So this idea of intersectionality has really caught on. It started uh, and it's in every discipline now. So it's not definitely not just in law. There's people in social science and also critical race theory generally. Um, it started in law, but people in other disciplines, in history, sociology, education, uh, a lot of them are um, now having critical race theory. Now it came into the national media this fall, fall 2020, because the Trump administration issued an executive order
0: Mm, that
1: banned the use of critical race theory in uh, training workshops, in mandatory training workshops, (laughs) that would be had by any entity getting government funding. So this is not only the government, but it would include universities, it could include corporations. And you might say, now, why would they even bother doing that? I mean, is this movement of some professors of such threat to them? Well, yes, it was, because it talks about white supremacy.
0: Right, right. Yep.
1: <laughs> and it calls out the racism in society. So they banned its use uh, in mandatory. So they weren't banning it as a course that I could teach, which is right. what I do, but banning it in mandatory training. So huh. I'm sure that that executive order will be one of those that President Biden is going to annul when he gets uh, into office because it's ridiculous. You can't talk about race if you don't want to address these issues. And since this past summer, when we had all of the racial incidents uh, that occurred that resurged, um, you know, many people in America, in the corporate sector, the educational sectors, the non-governmental sectors, want to have their staff learn about these things. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in other words, critical race theory then is going to be even more popular um, in all those sectors of our society that are interested in trying to deal with the racist legacy that the United States uh, has.
0: Right. Huh, wow. <laughs> that, so that, that's, that's crazy because so what, I, what I'm hearing is, you know, at least when the, the, the executive order came to stop the sort of the training, it just seems that it reminds me of way back in the day when, you know, when slaves got smarter or started reading or, you know, being educated on, you know, certain aspects of the United States or the law. Um, they were being cut off because they don't. People don't want them to be educated, right? Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to think that 400 years later, that's sort of exactly what's happening. Because the more the more we know, the more people know, the more people learn about things. Their eyes become open, and the way to shut people off is to prevent them from learning about what is going to help them be successful right which is crazy in 2020 like why in the world do we want to shut people off from educating themselves right if it's, it's been not for 100
1: years right Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eric Bell right one of the founders right of critical race theory he wrote a book that talked about the permanence of racism it was his view that racism wasn't something we were going to you know eventually eliminate right in that it's always going to be there so i i view it as think of if if you have if you're an alcoholic you're going to have alcoholism forever that Mm. doesn't mean you give up it means you treat it but it's not something that because you say a prayer or because you go through a, a treatment program it's just going to vanish so in that sense well racism's been around for hundreds of years and it's going to be around indefinitely now some people criticized him even from within critical race theory, because to say racism is permanent, sounds very depressing.
0: Right, yes. Yeah. to
1: me, I, I don't find it necessarily depressing if you look at it such as the alcoholism where you, the society will keep dealing with it, it will keep evolving. And, and then it helps you because if you can define the disease properly, well, then you can come up with the treatment. If you think racism is something that's like uh, a little uh, scratch on your hand, right. then you may think that, oh, if I just take a Band-Aid of a little diversity program that I start at my university, that that's going to cure it. But if you look at racism as a pervasive cancer right. in the American body, well, you don't treat racism with a Band-Aid. You have to do systematic treatments. It could be chemotherapy, right? It could be right. radiation. Yeah. It could be holistic. But you, your, your treatments are going to be much more pervasive. So in other words, the things that we're still facing in America today, 400 years later, have to be addressed by massive education, massive government and private sector policies, right? So letting a few of us into a university like a Princeton or a University of Iowa does, has not changed the overall plight of the bulk of African-American people. Mm, right. We still have no wealth. We're still overrepresented in prison. We're still facing discrimination in every job. So you need much bigger remedies than just, I can individually sue this corporation because it did something just to me. Right. So, uh, keeping that approach of centuries long, um, focus is helpful. And this is true not only for racism, right, but for sexism, for homophobia, or any other ism. They've been around, they're going to be around a very long time. They, get, they can get better. But another principle of Bell is he believed in the cyclical nature of racism. So it isn't just getting better. So it could get better. Things could get better. Let's say we had President Obama But then the Trump administration represents the backlash. Right. Definitely, you can only interpret a lot of the activities we've seen as a backlash against that first Black president, which literally has driven some people literally crazy uh, because it undermines their idea of permanent white domination of the United States.
0: Wow. So so that, that, that just that blows my mind because I mean, you're right. It's like in the United States, again, I've been in Iowa for many, many years, you know, and I've, I've lived or experienced life in the East Coast a little bit. Um, and it just seems to me that in the United States, what happens is we try to get forward and get better, right? A little bit. And then as soon as people see that, oh my God, like there are things getting better. People are getting educated or uh, we're sort of accepting people for who they are. There is this really hard reality of, oh no, that's not what we are, it's America, right? <laughs> or maybe that's what we are in America, but you know what? There is this other side that does not want America to be like that. And it just happens that, you know, immediately after people just wake up and realize, oh, Black people are trying to take over the world, right? At least that's what it seems to me. But, you know, one of the articles that I read uh, that you sent me from the uh, Berkeley Women's Law um, Journal was, you know, you're talking about race being looked as cancer, right? Um, but in the article, you talked about race being a crime. And what I wanna do is I wanna read a little uh, piece from the article um, and it says, I have come to the realization that Black women are lifelong victims of what Pat Williams has so aptly called spirit murder. Williams only addresses the racial aspect, noting that race is a crime, an offense, deeply painful and assaultive, right? But then you go into um, further and add that sexism, right? Uh, uh, racism, sexism is as as devastating and as costly, right? Um, And so tell me a little bit about the concept of spirit injury. um, And and let's talk a little about what it means for race to be a crime. But before you do that, there's this little piece that I read that um, you talked about when you're five years old and a kindergarten girl at um, at a at a, uh, at a playground. <laughs> and so i'm going to read a little bit of that and then we can go into you know the the spirit the spirit injury um and we can talk about spirit murder and you know all of that right so you were in kindergarten and you said the first conscious spirit injury I remember came at about the tender age of five when I was part of a group of kindergarten girls, all the rest white, going to an amusement park in Indianapolis, Indiana. After patiently waiting in line with a great ante- anticipation, we were certainly, um, we were okay, so you got to the gate. Um, and the reason giving was simply because no Negroes allowed in the park. So you waited for like forever and then you got to the gate and it was your turn and they're like, oh, no Negroes allowed. And of course, all the children started crying. One of the girls pointed at me and said, it was your fault, right? Tell me a little bit about that experience at a very young age. Yes, um, that
1: was one of my first spirit Injuries, as, as you said, I, I wrote about it. it was the first time I realized uh, about race that there, I was part of some group called Negro. Back then they used the word Negro. Right. And that that was bad, that it literally meant that I couldn't go into that park. Uh, this would have been about 1960 or 61, 1961, uh, and that I couldn't go in there. And before that, I, you know, I just you know, had never really thought about that kind of issue. And I think they, they find most children learn about these racial differences at about that age. Um, and, and so it was very frightening to me. And then as you may know, in the famous Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court case, presented uh, evidence of a doll study where they gave children, black children, a white doll and a black doll. That was in the 50s. And the children, the black children always chose the white doll as prettier. Well, they've done that study recently And the same result, here we are 50, 60 years later, and a a young black child has learned that the white doll is the pretty one and the one that looks like them is not pretty. So Mm -hmm. these are what I call spirit injuries. Uh, As you said, I was taking uh, Professor Patricia Williams, who's now at Northeastern Law School. She came up with the idea of spirit murder, like racism, Uh, can kill your spirit. Uh, And so I looked at it as, okay, imagine a murder, right? But it's not a physical murder. It's a, it's a murder of your, your psyche. And it doesn't just happen at once. Instead, throughout your life, you could have many little spirit injuries, like the time they call you the N word, the time that you don't get picked for this or that. So if you start adding all these little spirit injuries, kind of like small cuts on you over years, they add up until your spirit is murdered. And when your spirit is murdered, you can then be capable of self-destruction, whether that's suicide, Or it is, you know, doing bad things where you're eating the wrong thing, where you're behaving a certain way, or it can be homicide, it can be taking drugs, it can be lashing out because your spirit is murdered. And so I then developed the idea of spirit warming to help with the spirit injuries. We all need things that will help warm our spirit. People that would say, you're a beautiful little girl, rather than, Oh, you would be cute if you weren't so dark, if right. your hair wasn't so whichever. And these these concepts of spirit injury, spirit warming, they can be applied for racism or sexism, but they they apply on an individual level. So in your family, you could have a parent that looks at you as, oh, you're the dumb one. You're the dumb one. You're the fat one. You're the one that's not pretty. Right. And these individual injuries to you from within your family,
0: yeah.
1: they kill your spirit as well. And then they affect. it affects how you relate to friends, how it relates to whether you can get married and stay in a relationship, how you treat your children. And so uh, the terms should be looked at both from an individual level and then group group levels as well how are my muslim grandchildren Mm. supposed to feel when everything in the media is saying muslims are criminal
0: bad bad yeah evil people yeah (laughs) etc and that's
1: what they get from the media every you know anytime anything is mentioned about muslims
0: wow so the the, the the spirit injury um, one of the things that I read was well again one of the stories um, that you talked about and when you explained the spirit injury was you went to um, a national conference of black lawyers in New Orleans um, and so when you were there it was the first time you were in the, the city of jazz and you know there was so much excitement um, you know but you went on a tour to uh, i think it was a city cottage right yeah um, and so you went on this tour and you know and i'm reading through and you wanted to tour the it, it was the uh, i think it was the 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 plantation you you go around uh, it wasn't a plantation
1: a city a city house a city,
0: a city house. house okay got it all right it was the city house yep so you're going through this tour and the tour guide is, you know, talking about, you know, this beautiful mansion, all these things in there, but your attention was really more of the smaller houses um, to the site. And you had asked the, the tour, um, what are the small houses for? Do people sleep there? And they're like, oh, no, we don't talk about those, right? And, and it was interesting to me because you, you were asking a lot of questions because, you had you knew something that the tour guy wasn't even aware of, and at the end of the tour, I think you bought a book. Um, and I'll have you explain a little bit about that. But you bought a book, but then the tour guy asked you, "Why do you have so much interest in the general?" And then you answered, "No, the general had an interest in you, right? Because um, your great grandmother Susan." Um, Was impregnated by the general, right? And so that's where you came from. And it was just amazing to me that even though um, the tour guide was supposed to be given some level of history, you know, the question that you were asking that tour guide, she had no idea. And you were there on a purpose to find sort of your identity, right? Tell me a little bit about how that whole thing went. Because I can just imagine like, you know, sitting back and out, like being in the mix and listening to you asking questions and the tour guy getting frustrated, like who is this little black girl asking all these questions, right? What does she know? Um, little did she know that you know a whole lot more than she does, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about how that went and how amazing everybody else with you at that time was so like just excited and happy that you were asking those questions.
1: Yes, uh, the city cottage that I was touring uh, had at one point been owned or, or uh, inhabited by um, former Confederate General Pierre Beauregard. Mm. General Beauregard uh, was the Confederate General that fired on Fort Sumter in, um, you know, Charleston. And it started the civil war. Mm, yep. So my general Beauregard was my great, great grandfather.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, one of my great, great grandfathers. And he, uh, he had a relationship with a, a, a woman, a mulatto woman, mixed black white woman that gave birth to my great grandmother who was Susan Beauregard. Right. So, um, this story was passed down through my grandmother's family to, to my generation. And uh, I always hated General Beauregard because of course he was a Confederate general. He was fighting to keep slavery. Right. Uh, and, and so when I happened to be going to a conference in New Orleans, all of my, my mother's fa- family were saying, you have to go to see the general's house, uh, a small, and it was a, a more, not of a mansion, but of a small house he lived in it after the civil war. There is, There was a Beauregard plantation that was out of the city that was not owned by him, but was ended up being owned by his son who became a judge. Uh, so I, I didn't go out to that plantation. So you remember a few years ago when everybody's talking about, we got to get rid of all of these uh, monuments.
0: Monuments, yep,
1: so right, in yep. New Orleans, there was a uh, monument to General Beauregard Uh, where he was up on a big horse, you know, on a square. And so his uh, monument was one of uh, the monuments taken down. Uh, And so I was, of course, very happy about that. But going back to when I went to the cottage, uh, when the tour guide, you know, asked me like, why am I asking so many questions about what was happening, including who lived in the back? In the back of the cottage were some areas that in the eighteen late 1800s, probably uh, the bottom were like stables for horses. Mm-hmm. And above that were, were living quarters that at one point had been for slaves. And then later on were used for servants. So I was thinking, oh, my God, did my great, great grandmother, you know, was she ever working or living in, right. in that area above the horses, you know? And and so, anyway, that's when she when the, so when the tour guide asked me, "Why do you have so much interest in the general?" I say, "It's not that I have interest in the general; it's that he had an interest in me, a property right. interest, right? <laughs> I'm the great great granddaughter." So right. this her mind. But the other people on the tour, I don't know, maybe there were eight or nine people. Yeah. They thought it was fascinating, and they wanted to take my picture next to the big <laughs> portrait of General Beauregard, which was a port, they had a portrait of him with his white wife, right? right. And his white children, right? I'm not descended from that wife. From <laughs>
0: that, yeah, no, I feel, Yeah, I yeah, yep. <laughs> uh,
1: so they just thought it was, it was great to, to meet a descendant of, of General uh, Beauregard. And so, but now I've come to appreciate the general more because uh, apparently the child that he had, Uh, with Sally Hardin, that child, Susan Beauregard, was sent to school, was sent to education in some kind of a French convent type school. So in the late 1800s, she was getting an education that was not available to most people, not to mention to most Black people. So Susan Beauregard gets this education. She ends up having eight children, including my grandmother, All of them went to university. Oh, okay. Went to university in the early 20th century. My mother did. I did. My children have. So I am third generation college educated black person. And there's people of any color in my category. And it started with General Beauregard putting Susan on that path. Even though, of course, there was no legal relationship or anything like that. So I've kind of, for that aspect of him, of course, I still dislike all of the Confederate aspect. Right. Apparently, after the war, he also was in favor of the Black men getting the vote, which was the 15th Amendment. Right. Right. And he was, uh, you know, regarded as a traitor for that, right? Because the Confederate War, you know, they, the Confederates lost, but he was a hero of these Confederates. And here he was saying that the Black men should vote. As you know, women didn't get to vote till 1920. Right. So it wasn't an issue of any women of any color uh, voting. So it was a quite fascinating story. So it was a spirit injury going yeah. into this place where he worked, where right. he had lived, um, and seeing uh, things that had happened there but also quite fascinating as well so I bu- the book I bought was a was a, a biography of his life and then they had a a family tree of his family right going back into France into I think the 1400s uh, so I could on his line go all the way back into France and, um, so that was very, very valuable because as you know, you know, the, the black side of the family, we cannot go back, uh, right. Right. very yep. far at all. And it's part of our group spirit injury that I cannot say looking at you that I am a Nigerian American descent or an Angolan American descent or a Ghanaian American. Right. I don't know. My people came from Africa, but I don't know where <laughs> that's a very, yeah,
0: no way. right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For you
1: who have come later, you know, you know where your family is from in Ghana and your people, and yet here we we don't we don't know that. So right, uh, and we will never know that. Although through these DNA tests, uh, which I haven't taken yet, you know they can tell you oh your people are from this area right in Africa, but it's not like they can.
0: They you know, can tell yeah, yeah. Which yeah. again, so. Yeah, there's this whole concept of, uh, I think it was last year, that was the year of the return. Um, Then we had a lot of uh, um, African Americans go back to, you know, the African country, especially in Ghana. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they went back to find their roots. And even now, there's a lot of um, Black Americans who are buying property in you know places like Ghana and you know the some West African countries or even you know all of Africa because they want to either go back there and live there mm-hmm. or they want to you know spend some time they get into know the culture. I mean, personally, I think it's absolutely fabulous that they're doing that. Um, you know, and it, it just kind of brings me back to sort of the 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 difference between um, a, a black African versus a black American um, mm-hmm. now. I want to save that for part two, right? The domestic blacks versus the international blacks, because that is a whole conversation that you know we need to have. But what I do want to ask you though is, when you went to General Borgard's um, uh, sort of the, the house, that was about what thirty years ago, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So when you you bought the the book. But at that time, you couldn't read it because you're like the pain of finding out the other details was something that might just be too much for you. Did you ever read the, the book that you bought? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You
1: I, I read it. And I've actually since then been um, to other places in America like Charleston, right, which is near where Fort Sumter is. Yep. And there's a lot of Beauregard material there. Uh, i and I've been to the museum there. So I've actually been to several museums where I was looking at the a uniform of General Beauregard, a cup that belonged to him, medals that he had. So I, I have seen physical items right. that he, that belonged to him. So that's very, a very interesting feeling in itself. Right. If you could look at something, your great, great grandfather actually wore or touched. And then in Washington, DC, at the National Portrait Gallery, we went in there uh, one time, and I said, "Hmm, I wonder if there's a portrait of Beauregard. And there
0: is. There is. A
1: giant portrait of a Confederate general, Beauregard, in the National Portrait Gallery. A huge portrait. And so I, I took a picture by this portrait, and my face is kind of frowning you know, because what am I supposed to do? And,
0: right. You and can't smile. <laughs>
1: a family resemblance that is still there. And uh, I recently got a hold of a picture of Susan Beauregard, his daughter, and it's a very strong resemblance, as you would imagine, someone right. who is his, his daughter. So I, I've done quite a bit more research and, and read that was uh, one of the biographies that people did of him maybe 1930 i mean it was way after he died but you know certainly closer to that era and yeah. some of my relatives have done even much more uh, research than than i have on him
0: wow so i i i am again, enjoying this conversation, It's uh, it, it, this is great. Um, but I do want to sort of end um, with the spirit injury concept with one last example, which um, you gave of um, when you were teaching um, a class and Justice, I think it was Justice- um, Scalia. Scalia, yeah, Justice Scalia was going to come and visit the school um, and it was such a wonderful thing that you know what it this you be it would be a great thing for him to come to the school, for him to come and see. And you, I think it was you teaching race. Um... I was teaching a racism course, race, yeah,
1: racism, yep. and American law before critical race theory. I was teaching race, racism, and he had said, right. uh, Justice Antonine Scalia, that I will come to any class that's in an area that I am you know familiar with. right So uh, I asked him, I put in a request. Could he come to my class? Because racism, race is part of constitutional law, right. right the study of race, you learn it in constitutional law. And he had taught constitutional law. So I put in the request and he denied it. He's, and he, you know he didn't talk to me directly, but I heard he said, oh, I can't talk about that, because that's not yeah. my subject. And I'm like, oh my god, here's someone on the Supreme Court, a specialist in constitutional law, right. and saying race is w- not in his expertise, yet he's issuing opinions <laughs> on race that are contrary to the rights of you know, people of color. So what was amazing about that, the, the word got out that he wouldn't speak to my class. And so um, the students from the not just the law school, but university students, they decided to have a protest against him speaking at Iowa Law School. So they were going to protest him anyway. But right. one of the issues <laughs> was that he wouldn't even come and speak right. to my class about race and the, you know, he's now passed away, but he was a good friend with uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, who is still on the Supreme Court. And he apparently told Justice Thomas, don't go to Iowa, don't treat you <laughs> mean. <laughs> Meanwhile, Justice Thomas does go to Drake. He does
0: speak oh, Drake just have quite
1: Drake. a Drake, okay. but <laughs> he will not come and speak at University of Iowa. Uh, and so we, I like to think it's because his best buddy was telling him, don't go to Iowa, right? We might, they'll, they'll
0: protest you. Right. Um, or so is there, don't go there. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so he hasn't uh, done that. And then it's interesting because I just saw that Justice Thomas's wife apparently was one of these people out at the protest uh, recently uh, on January 6th. And apparently she paid for 70 busloads of people to come into Washington. So that's what she did, that she's right. doing right now. Um, and this, this incident I wrote about was in nineteen like ninety, nineteen ninety.
0: 1990. Right.
1: Wow. That, uh, <laughs> that happened. So in other words, Justice Scalia passed away, but the, his, his view on race uh, is alive and well uh, on the Supreme Court, not only from Justice Thomas, but some of the other people who have since come on to uh that court uh, which as you know, has got three appointees from the trump administration yep. uh, in in the last four years wow
0: this is this is this is this is all this is amazing um well so I think i I don't want to end this, but it looks like we we we're going to have to wrap out uh, wrap up part one <laughs> of detangling black identities with uh, we? And like I said, you're one of those individuals that when. You know, when you start talking to it, you don't want to leave because there's so much, you know, rich culture, rich wealth, uh, knowledge and everything. Because you've gone through so much as an individual and you've traveled so much and see so many, you know, different, uh, um, uh, different spaces from, you know, race, gender and all of that, that you know, I just want to talk to you forever, <laughs> you know, but I want to make sure that, you know, um, at least, you know, we come back and continue this conversation. Um, so before uh, we end with maybe the part one of detangling Black identity with uh, Din Wing, um, what I want to do is you You used to be a poet. I mean, I think you're still a poet and you write beautifully. Um, I sometimes try to dabble in some poetry, but I'm not anywhere close. I just put words together. Um, (laughs) What I want to do, is I want to read a piece of um, your poem. I think this is way when you were in high school. Uh, And I I want to read it and just sort of have you give your thoughts about this poem. And then after that, you can just give us the the closing words, right? Um, And so again, this poem starts with Black 17-year-old woman can feel the pain the slaver slash the lynching tree, love of my proud, humble. Yes, sir. Ancestors, Ghana, Mali, Sangay. I'm the sum of total of their being a sense. My heart wants to burst in pride. Sun God, my black man of darker hues. Hold my, suns, my sunshine in. They try to separate us. They, the whites, will be dazzled by it. Wait until we are behind secret doors, safe from their gaze. Then I will disrobe myself in your brilliance, Black man, my man. I'm your young, gifted, and very beautiful Black woman. My hidden power has supported you. I above you, you above me. Stand beside me now, we are one, and they shall fear the beauty of us now. Now, when I first read that, I was in tears, right? So I I'm, I get emotional, right? I am, I'm a very emotional person, even though my wife, drew me doesn't think so, right? When I first read that, it, it was just like it spoke to me in, in a way that a lot of times, especially what's going on now, you know, with Black men and, you know, uh, brutality and stuff like that, you know, we forget how powerful Black women are, right? So, again, for me, you know, I am in a space that I'm able to sort of speak my mind or even, you know, at certain times, I'm afraid to speak my mind because of retaliation, right? Even though people tell me, oh, Eddie, you can speak your mind. But it's really, you know, the, the black woman, my wife behind me supporting my efforts, right? Making sure that, hey, you know, you need to check yourself. You need to make sure when you speak, you speak with, you know, authenticity. or you need to speak with authority, right? You know, and that poem reminds me of not only, like going through the slavery, you know, so many years ago and all the, the slaves and the, the women, the powerful women behind all the, the, the black success. You know, it reminds me of just the sheer volume of um, disregard for what black women go through, right? Um, that I don't know the, the, the concept or your state of mind when you wrote that, but you know, that's what speaks to me. Um, from that poem Um, tell me a little bit about that and what was going through your head when you when you wrote that
1: I was in high school Mm -hmm. when I wrote that Um, and it actually I haven't read it for a long you know heard it read for a long time and I was very much influenced then by the black power movement Mm -hmm. right so it was that era so you had Angela Davis out there, the Black Panthers, you know, a whole idea that we need to assert our power. And so um, I was very much influenced by that. I was also starting to date, you know, that I, I had a boyfriend, I had somebody I could relate to. And, you know, as Black young people, we were affected by all of the racism against us, the, the Nixon administration era, etc. And and so, you um, I actually could have written that poem right now, except take out the word young. I'm turning 65 this year, so uh, I may be young at heart, but I'm certainly not young chronologically.
0: And let me just say, you look nothing like you're close to 65. I mean, in all honesty, I look at you and you probably like, in your forties, like me, right? Because like when we stand next to each other, you probably look more like my older sister, like more than my mom. Um,
1: Very (laughs) kind of you to say, uh, an age is is really part of your spirit, right? There's Mm -hmm. people like Cecily Tyson, who's 90 something.
0: Yep. And she's
1: very energetic, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's turning 80. I watch him jump around and all that. So a lot of it is, is your mentality, but, um, you know, this, this poem kind of gets back to the principles uh, that I was saying that, you know, if Black people have been dealing with racism for hundreds of years, uh, Black men and women together fighting that racism mm-hmm. and expressing Black love remains critically important. And so when I wrote that poem, I, I don't even remember who I was dating, but I, when I say I could write it now, right. I could write it because my partner, Now, James Somerville, uh, who I have known for 40 years. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We, um, I I would use this to characterize our relationship and our strength uh, over the time that we've known each other. And often people don't think that old people could even think like that. But once again, chronologically, you may be a certain age, but our spirits are still young. We see ourselves as the young people we were when we met in our 20s. And that that's important for everyone to be able to go forward despite all of this racism. So I'd like to close by just saying I very much enjoyed uh, this first conversation we're having, uh, especially on the eve of uh, an inauguration uh, for uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris and of course, Vice President Harris, who will be the first uh, woman of color being both black and of Indian descent. Absolutely. uh, Vice President uh, position. And and that's all very exciting too. And so uh, I look forward to seeing what we're gonna talk about uh, for our next conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Again, you are on the edge with Eddie Detangling Black Identities with Dean Adrian Wing. Um, I am just having such a great time. We will continue our conversation. Um, again, You know, next time we'll talk about the intersectionality between the, the, the well, intersectionality, the black identities, right? We're talking about domestic black. So African-Americans, black Americans versus black Africans, right? So again, it was someone who came from Ghana sort of grew up in Ghana and then got to get to the United States. There was this whole confusion of wait, what am I? Am I a Black African? Am I a Black American? You know, I told the story of, you know, people look at me like, oh, you're African. Yes, I'm African, but I have a United States citizen. Am I a Ghanaian American? Um, and then when I go back to Ghana, people look at me and say, Oh, well, you're a black American, right? Mm-hmm. And so that whole concept is just just crazy to me. <laughs> and you know, trying to find my identity and maybe you can help me find my identity because you know it's just it's it's hard trying to sort of um, get into a space that you know you get isolated because of who you are right and so that's what we're going to be talking about next uh, we'll probably also be talking about uh the multiplier um effect that um you know uh, you have in one of your articles but it's really has been an honor seriously being here having this conversation i look forward to more conversations and i hope everybody else is enjoying again you're on the edge with eddie detangling black identities with Dan adrian wing Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to more and more conversations.